And we should sing resurrection songs every Sunday. Wait a second, we do. Praise the Lord. I'm encouraged by that. On this Easter morning, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Normally we preach through books of the Bible start to finish. We're in the middle of a series on Luke, but on this Resurrection Sunday, we often will look at a text specifically geared toward the truth that we celebrate today. So 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be. We're going to look at verses 50 to 58 this morning, where the Apostle Paul is concluding his powerful explanation of the resurrection of Christ and what that means for believers. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58. Let's give our attention now to God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain." Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask for Your help now as we come to hear from the Word of God. Anytime we open the Bible to read, Father, it is a spiritual activity. We need the Spirit's help to understand what is written in the Scriptures We thank You that You do give us the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds that we would respond to the Word of God with obedience and repentance and faith. We pray for that to happen this morning, Father. We pray for our hearts to be encouraged, for our confidence to increase, for our joy, Father, to be rooted in Christ and not in the things of this world. We pray, God, that You would keep me from error as we open Your Word now together. We pray, Father, for discernment, that we would know the things that are true and that we would hold fast to them and thus be saved. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, what a difference a year makes. A year ago, at this time, I was speaking to you on a recording. On Resurrection Sunday 2020, we were still in our homes, unsure of the course of the pandemic and therefore praying for how best to proceed in faithfulness to God's Word. What a difference a year makes to be able to be together. And yet while the circumstances look different from this year to last, what impresses me the most this morning is what has not changed. 
Namely, the reality that our confidence rests on the rock-solid truth that the tomb is empty. The tomb was empty 2,000 years ago. The tomb is empty today. And the tomb will be empty when the eastern sky splits and the Lord Jesus descends on the clouds bodily and gloriously to gather His people together. Pandemic or not, the resurrection reality never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Praise God. And that explains in part why I chose 1 Corinthians 15 for this morning. Here in this chapter, the Apostle Paul proclaims to us both the reality and the necessity of Christ's resurrection. It appears that some believers in the church in Corinth were being misled to think that there was no physical resurrection. So Paul points them back to the resurrection of Christ. If the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sins and most of all to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised. And therefore, believers will be raised to new life with Him. In other words, 1 Corinthians 15 is the Apostle's declaration that our confidence, indeed our very lives, rests on this truth that cannot change. That Jesus died for our sins. That He was buried. And that He was raised again on the third day. That truth never changes. Indeed, if you're, if you're visiting us this morning and you're not a Christian... This is the one thing that I would urge you to consider during the sermon. Before you probe any other part of the Bible, consider this. Is the tomb empty or not? That's actually not an open question, but it's a question that you must reckon with nonetheless. Is the tomb empty or not? The Scriptures are very clear, and the historical record backs it up that there was no body in the tomb on Easter morning. What's more, the Scriptures are clear and the historical record confirms that upwards of 500 people saw Jesus alive after His death. An empty tomb, a resurrected body, so many eyewitnesses, it's impossible to fake it. If you're not a Christian today, this is the one thing that you ought to consider. Will you believe and submit to what the Bible very clearly proclaims? That Jesus died for sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day. It's the one thing that you ought to deal with. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has been proclaiming this central importance of the resurrection. And now as he comes to the end of the chapter, he comes to the climax of his argument. And what he urges the Corinthians to see is that the resurrection is the foundation of all of our confidence as Christians. The resurrection is the foundation of all of our confidence as Christians. So think for a moment of a great mansion. The the biggest house, the biggest mansion that you've ever seen. Gloriously constructed, richly furnished. No matter how stunning that mansion is, without a solid foundation, it cannot stand. You cannot enjoy the richness of that beautiful house, that glorious mansion, unless it rests on something unmoving. And so it is with the Christian life. The Gospel is a great mansion of promises. Richly furnished beyond what we can imagine. Forgiveness of sins. Justification. Adoption. Love forever by God in Jesus Christ. The Gospel is this great mansion of promises. But that mansion only stands if the foundation is sure. 
And friends, our foundation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our foundation is that the tomb is empty. That's Paul's point in this chapter. Because Christ is raised, all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. Because Christ is raised, we have the confidence of entering the Father's great mansion of glory and grace where we will enjoy eternal fellowship in the presence of the triune God. The foundation of our confidence is the resurrection. So what I want us to do this morning is seek to strengthen that confidence by looking at this text and noting three ways that the resurrection of Jesus upholds our hearts before God. Three ways that the resurrection bears us up and gives us a solid footing upon which we can stand. So to continue that image of a great mansion, you can think of the truths from the sermon this morning as the, as the stones that make up that foundation that holds up the great mansion of gospel promises. There's three ways that our hearts can be strengthened in confidence this morning. Let's notice them together. Number one, the first foundation for our confidence is this. Resurrection fits us for glory with Christ. Resurrection fits us for glory with Christ. Paul opens this climactic section of his letter with what we might call some gospel logic. He's building on the reality of Christ's resurrection, but he does so in an interesting way. Notice the negative statement in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, you know that God's kingdom is His redemptive rule in Jesus Christ. And that kingdom is a spiritual reality. On this side of Christ's return, there is not a geographic center of God's kingdom. There's no city on earth that can claim to be the capital of the kingdom of God. Rather, God's kingdom is revealed in the rule of Christ through His Word, applied by His Spirit in the presence of His people, the church. The kingdom, in other words, is a spiritual reality. And that reality will be realized one day in the new creation. But Paul's point here in verse 50 is that our bodies in their present form are not fit to enter that kingdom. At this moment, we live in bodies that are prone to decay and corruption and ultimately to death. Every day our bodies break down a little bit more. I had to go get some old man sneakers because I'm turning 40 this month. Every day. We decay a little bit more. But God's kingdom is the place of life and immortality where nobody has to wear old man sneakers. These decaying bodies, what Paul calls the perishable, this is the perishable, these decaying bodies cannot possibly exist in the world that is to come. We need a change in nature or we cannot enter into glory. Now, you might think, that's a rather depressing point to make in an Easter sermon. I thought that Easter was about good news and eternal life. Uh, this sounds very negative. Well, perhaps it would be if we stopped here, but Paul's not finished. Remember I said he's employing some gospel logic 
Notice the next step that he takes. He keeps building. Look at verse 51, where Paul introduces the reality that overcomes verse 50's impossibility. Paul says, verse 51, Behold, that's, get your, hey, look, get your attention. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Friends, in the New Testament, the word mystery is not something that we have to figure out. Rather, mystery is something that God reveals. And the mystery here is that our decaying, perishable bodies will be changed. On the last day, God will suddenly change His people, verse 52, both the living and the dead, transforming them in such a way that they are fit to inherit the kingdom of God. That change in nature will happen. In fact, notice the language that Paul uses in verse 53. He uses the language of necessity. Look at verse 53. For this perishable body must, it must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. You see, resurrection is a non-negotiable in God's economy. It's a a divine necessity. Death will not hold God's people in the prison of decaying, corruptible bodies. On the last day, God will raise His people to new life. And in doing that, God will fit us for glory. So, follow the logic from verse 50 all the way to verse 53. If flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, then it must mean that God will change us so that we can receive His kingdom. That's the point that Paul's making. Resurrection is a non-negotiable in God's economy. It's, it's necessary for redemption. Now, there's a question here that we ought to answer because it's essential for Paul's point to be true. There's a question we ought to answer. The question is this. How does Paul know that this logic is true. How does Paul know that his argument will hold? Think about it. Death continues all around the Apostle Paul. Even the Apostle is going to die himself pretty soon. So how in the world can Paul form this argument? How in the world can Paul say that we will be changed? What is the source of his confidence that you and I will be fit for glory? The answer, friends, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The answer is the resurrection of Christ. Because Christ has been raised in a body fit for glory, so also will believers be raised in bodies that are fit for glory as well. You see, Paul is thinking of Christ's resurrection from two perspectives at this point. One is the historical perspective. The resurrection of Christ is a historical fact having occurred in time and space, fulfilled in the flesh and blood existence of Jesus of Nazareth. The resurrection is a historical fact. But the second perspective that Paul has is just as important. Paul also sees the resurrection as a gospel promise. It's a historical fact and a gospel promise. The resurrection is preaching to us, friends. 
It's proclaiming to us that our future is glory with Christ as well. Because we are united to Christ by faith, the risen one, we too will be raised. Indeed, to believe on the risen Christ is to believe that your future is already revealed and secure in Him. You see, the resurrection is both a fact and a promise. Indeed, the fact of Christ's resurrection makes the promise true. It's a historical reality and therefore, it's a gospel promise to you and to I. Brothers and sisters, this is why this is why it is so essential to believe and to proclaim that Christ rose bodily from the grave. Listen to me. All across our city this morning are people gathering in places that have the name church on their building and they're celebrating the resurrection of Christ, but what they mean is that His Spirit like got up from the grave, but His body didn't. Friends, that's not the Gospel. And that's not the Word of God. We must insist that Christ rose bodily from the grave. This is why we must never waver in declaring that Jesus' body was stone cold dead. But then suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye, breath back in His lungs. His eyes opened and His veins filled again with the blood of resurrection life. We must not waver in that truth. A mere spiritual resurrection saves no one. Indeed, it condemns many. Christ rose bodily, physically, and gloriously. And in the reality of that physical fact, that historical fact, we have the promise, indeed the guarantee, that we will be fit for glory as well. I wonder sometimes if we talk about the resurrection too much in terms of apologetics and not enough in terms of discipleship. The resurrection is not a truth that Christians simply need to defend. You don't defend a lion on the savannah. He defends himself. The resurrection is not merely a truth that we need to defend. It's not primarily an apologetic concern. It is primarily a discipleship concern. The resurrection is a truth that's intended to help Christians grow. It's about discipleship. It's one of the truths that God uses to sustain us in our faith. To strengthen us when we're afraid. And to infuse us with confidence for whatever lies ahead. Even the things that we don't know. I guess that's what I'm aiming to do in this first point. I'm trying to get us to see, friends, that it's not just... It's not just an idea that we need to defend with historical facts. It is a fact, praise God, but it is primarily a discipleship truth that's intended to infuse our hearts with confidence that we too will enter glory. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but through Christ, resurrection fits us for glory. That's number one. If you look at verse 54, there's a second source of confidence for Christians. The resurrection assures us of victory through Christ. The resurrection assures us of victory through Christ. 
Paul has already established that believers will be raised. And he's grounded that confidence in the resurrection of Christ. Beginning in verse 54 though, Paul shifts in a slightly different direction. And he explains how Christ's resurrection brings God's promises to fulfillment. Notice how Paul does this, beginning in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Friends, the key here is Paul's use of the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 25, which is the verse that Paul cites there in verse 54, in Isaiah 25, God's salvation is pictured as a great feast spread on top of the mountain of God. We looked at this same passage in the Gospel of Luke just a couple of weeks ago. On that day, Isaiah promised, Isaiah prophesied, God promised, on that day, death would be swallowed up forever. Indeed, that's the main course of God's feast in Isaiah 25. They are feasting on the fact that God has swallowed up death forever. And every tear is wiped away and God's people enter into the joy of God's presence forever. No more pain, no more death, no more decay, no more futility and heartache and anxiety and inexplicable suffering that seemingly sucks the life from your soul. None of that, God says. It's all done away with. Because I swallow up death forever. And in the light of God's presence, we feast. We feast with God. That's the promise in Isaiah chapter 25. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is saying that that promise, that feast, is possible, it's fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. By rising from the dead, Jesus demonstrated the power of His victory at the cross. Death itself died in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this victory is so certain... The victory is so certain that Paul can taunt death. At the end of verse 55, look again at what he says. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I mean, make no mistake, friends, that is like apostolic trash talk. He's taunting death. He's he's referencing words from the prophet Hosea, and it's as if Paul is saying, where are you at now, death? Where are you at now, grave? Where is your power since Christ is risen from the dead? You see, Paul is celebrating the end of death. He's taunting death because death no longer has the final word. For the Christian, resurrection is the final word. And that final word has already been spoken in Jesus Christ. Christ's resurrection fulfills the Old Testament promise that death will be swallowed up forever. Or to say it another way, the Gospel is the end of Isaiah 25. The Gospel fulfills what God promised through the prophets. But then notice where Paul goes in verse 56. He's not done. He's been triumphing in the defeat of death, but then Paul goes one step deeper. Death is the great enemy of humanity, but death, the Bible tells us, is the result of sin. So if Christ defeated death, then that must also mean that Christ has defeated sin. And that's where Paul goes in verse 56. 
I love this about the Apostle Paul, by the way. He can scarcely write a few paragraphs in his letters before he comes back to the cross. He can scarcely write a few paragraphs before he has to talk about the death of Christ on the cross. Is that true of us? I hope it is. Look at what Paul says, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, there's a whole second sermon in that verse, but we're just going to look at one simple point. It's that first phrase, the sting of death is sin. What does that mean? It means that death is not the root cause of our trouble with God. Death is simply the fruit of our trouble. The real root of our trouble with God is sin. Sin is defiance of God. Sin is the act by which we choose to live in open rebellion against God. Death reigns because sin exists. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. But follow Paul's thinking at this point. You, gotta, you have to track with the Apostle Paul. If Christ's resurrection has swallowed up death, verse 54, then what does that mean for sin? It must mean that he's defeated sin as well. Christ has broken sin's power, which is why death has no hold over the Lord Jesus. And this, brothers and sisters, gets to the very heart of the Gospel message. What happened at the cross of Jesus Christ? What happened there? The biblical answer is both incredibly shocking and unthinkably wonderful. Christ took sin upon Himself. Indeed, we could be so bold as to use the Apostles' language, Christ became sin. As He hung on that cursed tree, Jesus, the Son of God, bore in His body the sin of His people. That may be too theoretical to get your attention, so let's put it this way. Every commandment broken. Every angry word spoken. Every vile thought entertained. Every sinister motive plotted. Every despicable deed done. Christ took each and every one of those upon Himself. And there, as darkness fell upon the earth, Christ paid with His blood in full for the sins of all of His people. God crushed Jesus for sin. That's what happened at the cross. And friends, that is why death is swallowed up forever. To get the resurrection, to get the joy of Easter morning, you have to have the darkness of Good Friday. To get the rejoicing in new life with God, you have to have the Son of God crushed in your place. You see, that's the glory of the Gospel. The resurrection is not merely a divine miracle of God's power. The resurrection is the culmination of redemption's drama that began at the cross. Death is swallowed up because sin is defeated. Resurrection Sunday comes because Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't get today's joy without the cross's agony. 
This is almost too wonderful to be true. And yet it is true. It's more true than anything else in the world. But would you believe me if I told you that the good news went one step further still? Well, you don't have to believe me. You can just take the Bible's word for it. Look at verse 57. It's a small but astounding point from the Apostle. Verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only appropriate response to the Gospel is worship. When we think of the cross, we ought to praise God. This is why we gather on the Lord's Day, friends, because thanks be to God, death has been swallowed up. But that's not the one thing that I want you to see in verse 57. Notice that Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. To whom? To whom does God give the victory? To us, Paul says. We receive the promise of death swallowed up. We embrace by faith the reality of sins forgiven. We inherit eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We, us sinners, us rebels against God, us people who should have been crushed, we receive the victory. Friends, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, why would you delay one moment longer? If you're not a Christian this morning, why would you wait one minute more? Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus is the Savior of sinners. You may have done things in your life that you dare not even utter out loud. Even in the darkness of your own room in the middle of the night. You may have done things that you dare not to utter out loud. And yet Jesus would say to you, bring those things to Me. Bring those things to My cross. And let me show you the power of God in the blood of the Lamb. If you don't know Christ today, why would you delay one minute more? Come to Christ. Repent of your sins and believe that this man Jesus saves sinners like us. If you are a Christian this morning, for those who are trusting in Christ and repenting of their sins, The question that verse 57 is putting in front of you, the question that you ought to ask is, do you believe this victory is yours in Christ Jesus? Do you believe the victory is yours? I would never be so presumptuous as to tell you that you have such an astounding victory. I would never be so presumptuous as to tell you that. But God's Word is telling you that. He gives us the victory. So do you believe Him? If you're a Christian this morning, do you believe that this victory is yours in Christ Jesus? Listen, I know that the fight against sin is hard. And I know that there are many days, maybe even today, where you are convinced that your fight against sin is going to end in defeat. But brothers and sisters, on the authority of God's Word, that's not your future. That's not your future. Thanks be to God, this victory is for you in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean you're instantly going to stop sinning tomorrow. That doesn't mean that magically all of your struggles are going to go away. We're going to fight against sin until we see Jesus face to face. So verse 57 is no magic formula. But it's something better. What this verse is telling us, friends, is of our end. And our end is victory. Indeed, the entire war is already won. Sin is defeated in Christ. And therefore, by God's grace, 
you too will one day enter fully into Christ's victory. Do you believe that this is your victory? Let the reality of this victory spur you on in the present. Far too often, we get focused on how hard the struggle is and we lose sight of how complete the victory is. Let the reality of what Christ has done spur you on and sustain you in the present. On the authority of God's Word, I will tell you this. For the Christian, there is no battle against sin that will not end in glory. For the Christian, based on verse 57, there is no battle against sin that will not end in glory. may not end before glory, but it will end there. Because the victory is won. This is part of our confidence as we live the Christian life. In fact, it's foundational. The resurrection assures us of victory through Christ. That's number two. Let's finish our reflections with verse 58, where we see a third and final way to have confidence before God. Verse 58, the resurrection sustains us in service to Christ. The resurrection sustains us in service to Christ. Another thing that I love about Paul's letters is his consistent connection of doctrine with everyday life. For Paul, theology is always meant to work. Theology is always meant to impact the way that we think and love and live. So just as an aside, if that's not how our theology works, then there's probably something wrong with our theology. Theology is meant to work. Doctrine is meant for everyday life. And that's true here at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul concludes these reflections with a very hands-on takeaway for everyday living. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Hmm. Those descriptions at the beginning of the verse mean exactly what it sounds like they mean. As Christians, we can be steadfast in the work that God has given to us. We can be immovable. Not shifting when the winds of the culture blow against us. Not despairing when opposition arises. Not shrinking back when challenges come. It means just what it says it means. We can be immovable. We can be steadfast. We can even abound in those difficult seasons, Paul says. To which we should ask, why? Or better, how? How can we have that kind of steadfast, immovable? I don't know about you guys, but I don't feel very immovable most days. I don't find steadfastness to be easy. So how? The answer is that final line. Look, the end of verse 58. Knowing that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. I'll be really honest with you. In the last year, I am not sure that there is a truth that has kept me going more than this one. Nearly every sermon that you've heard me preach in the last year, and certainly in the last six months, comes out of this one verse. In the Lord... Your labor is not in vain. Since Christ defeated death, surely no hardship will derail the plan and purpose of God. 
Since Christ defeated death, then surely nothing can stand against the church as she lives out her mission in the world. The resurrection is the great sustaining reality of Christian faithfulness. And and let's be clear, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to misunderstand me. It is the resurrection that sustains us, not the other way around. So verse 58 is not Paul's way of saying, hey, pull yourself up by your Christian bootstraps. You better buck up and just be tougher. That's, That's not what he's saying. In fact, that view would go against the Gospel's message. Paul's point is that the resurrection of Christ, embraced by faith, is so powerfully true it will sustain you in whatever God has given you to do. There can be no situation that appears so hopeless as the one on Saturday morning when Jesus was in the grave. And if that hopeless situation was actually not hopeless, but full of life, then there is nothing that will derail what God has called you to do. Discipleship, evangelism, marriage, parenting, your job, your service to the church, the resurrection of Christ embraced by faith will bear you up in that work. It's the ultimate victory of God over all the forces of darkness applied to your everyday Tuesday life. It will bear you up. God's work in and through His people will not fail because Christ has been raised from the dead. So here's what we do, friends. We train ourselves to think in terms of the resurrection. We train ourselves each day to put on the lenses of the resurrection so that we see the world not through the lens of how we feel or how things look, but through the resurrection of the fact that the tomb is empty. Instead of listening to yourself in moments of hardship, we need to learn to talk to ourselves with the truth of the Gospel. So when your parenting seems to be hitting a brick wall, which in your home might be every day, when your parenting seems to be hitting a brick wall, remind yourself this is not in vain. Christ Himself has been raised from the dead and therefore God will bear fruit in His time. My calling is to be steadfast in the work that God has given me to do. Or when your desire to share the gospel with your lost friends seems to go nowhere and they have no appetite to know God, tell yourself, Christ is risen from the dead and therefore no amount of spiritual darkness will prevail against those whom God has destined to save. I can be steadfast in the work because the tomb is empty. This is not in vain. Or when you pour your heart and soul into the work of the Lord, whether in your workplace or in your church, and it just seems to go nowhere, tell yourself, this is not in vain. This is not in vain. Christ is risen from the dead. God bears fruit in His time. And therefore, I will labor in faith for what God alone can do. Think in terms of the resurrection. Friends, this, is the, this kind of thinking is the exercise of faith. Faith does not happen by accident. You won't stumble into trusting God. Faith needs to be exercised through meditating on the truth. And there is no truth so powerful as the resurrection of Christ. So, let's listen to the Apostle Paul in verse 58. And let's put 
those glasses, those lenses of the resurrection on every day, and let's train ourselves to think in light of what God has done in Christ and then see what He has given us to do in light of that truth and not in light of anything else. The resurrection sustains us in service to the Lord. What a difference a year makes. Or perhaps it would be better to say what a difference a day makes. The day of Christ's resurrection. The day we celebrate today, the Lord's day. The resurrection fits us for glory. The resurrection assures us of victory. And the resurrection sustains us in service to Christ. Praise God that the foundation of our faith is this immovable, unshakable, unchangeable truth. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, help us. Our hearts and minds are so incredibly weak that when we wake up tomorrow, we will have effectively forgotten that Christ is risen from the dead. Would You help us, God, each day to train ourselves to think in light of verse 58 that we can be steadfast and immovable and even abounding in hope because we know that in the Lord, the risen Lord, the reigning Lord, the soon returning Lord, our labor is not in vain. Help us, God. We are far, far weaker than we want to admit. We are not as strong as we think we are. Help us, God. Help us, we pray, for the glory of Christ and for the spread of His Gospel. In His name, amen.